author Philip Yancey said, we're all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. As a rule, I think desperation is probably not something people look forward to, right? Nobody wants to be desperate because desperation implies a lack of something in our lives, something we desperately need. And so it's a lack so great, I think, that often we're willing to make major life-altering changes just to fill that need when we, when we find ourselves in times of desperation. So when people decide to get married, most often it's because you've come to the place in that relationship where you cannot take it any further, at least not according to God's design, without being married. And so when the need to have a deeper level of relationship with that person reaches the point of desperation without them, we make one of the most life-altering decisions anyone could ever make. A covenant commitment until death to join your very life, your body, your belongings, your hopes, your dreams, your future, your soul to that other person. When you think about the greatest changes that you've made in your life, the biggest risks you've taken, the deepest commitments you've made, those, those watershed moments that change the course of your life forever, you'll find if you think about it, that most of those decisions probably came out of a place of desperation. In fact, it's only when people come to realize their own desperate need for a Savior that they make the biggest change in life of them all, giving your heart and soul to Jesus Christ. And that really is the point of desperation. That's why God allows us to become Desperate, ultimately, it's to lead us to Him, to drive us into a closer, deeper, more committed relationship with Jesus Christ in order to change us more and more and more into His image, which is why it's so important when you find yourself in a place of desperation that your very first inclination is to press in, to, to lean in toward Christ before you do anything else, which we have a, a powerful example of in our story today, as we continue working our way through 1 Samuel, where David comes to a place of utter desperation, a moment where his own life and the lives of everyone he holds dear are hanging in the balance, leaving him with some very big and very imminent decisions that he has to make. And yet before David addresses anything else, before he determines what he's going to do about the dire circumstances he's facing or the people who are threatening his own life or the lives of his family, before David attends to anything else, he attends to his relationship with God. And what comes out of that desperate pursuit of closeness to God is nothing short of life-changing for David and for his family, for his men, and ultimately for the entire nation of Israel. And this is why as much as we would all like to avoid it. This is why you need desperation at times in your life. Because desperation drives us into a deeper relationship with Christ, and it is only out of the depths of that relationship that you will ever make the changes, the commitments, the life-altering decisions that you sometimes have to make in order to live the life that God has created and called you to live. Right? Jesus was sent by the Father, to offer his own life for us in the most horrific way, crucifixion on a Roman cross. And we know that at any moment, Jesus could have called down more than 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him from the people who were on their way to crucify him, according to Matthew 26, 53. So Jesus 
had a critical decision to make. And notice what he did in his own moment of desperation. He went straight to the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, I'm at the point of desperation. Remain here and watch with me, Matthew 26, 38. And then he goes off by himself and prays. And Luke tells us being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and sweat. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke twenty two forty four. Okay, in the most desperate moment of Jesus' life, he knew what he needed more than anything else was to be close to the Father. It's the same for you and me. Okay, when your life is in turmoil... When you're facing a critical decision, when something significant needs to change in your life, what you need more than anything before you address those circumstances or make any big decisions or make any major changes in your life, what is needed before all of that is for you to get close to God. Which, by the way, is entirely up to you. Right? Wherever you are with God in your life right now, wherever that is, you're as close to God as you want to be. You are as close to God right now in your life as you want to be. Because there's only one person on earth who can keep you from God. And that person is you. Right? So you can blame your lack of closeness on God, uh, to God on other people or on the wounds they've caused in your life. We certainly do that. Or on difficult circumstances that you're facing. It's exactly what we do. But those are actually choices we make. Critical choices when we allow a wound or a circumstance to drive us further from God rather than closer to Him. So He allows those times of desperation in your life, not to drive you away from Him, but to drive you closer to Him. That's why you actually need desperation as a part of your life. It points along the way to lead you into a deeper relationship with Christ because, again, that's the only way you'll ever be able to live the life He has created and called you to live. It's exactly what we find in our story today with David. So let's turn there where we left off last time. We'll cover the first half of chapter 30 today. So 1 Samuel chapter 30, we'll begin with the first six verses. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. If you were here last week, you'll remember that David and his 600 Hebrew fighters had gone out with the Philistine army that was amassing for war against Israel since David and his men and all their families had been living in Philistine territory for some time now. And so the Philistine king wanted David and his men to fight with them against the Israelites. <clears throat> but God had other plans. So he spares David from having to either fight against his own people or to turn and fight against the Philistines, who he'd been, again, living with for some time now. And so his great, uh, in his great sovereignty, 
God uses the Philistine lords, the rulers of the five Philistine city-states, to protest against David going out to war with them, demanding instead that the king send David and his men back home to Ziklag where they'd been living. That's where this story picks up today. <clears throat> As David and his 600 fighters arrive back home, probably relieved and elated at having been excused from war with the Israelites only to find their city, their homes burned, which was typical of ancient Near Eastern warfare, and also their families, wives, and children carried off, gone. Can you imagine coming home from work to find your house or your entire neighborhood burned to the ground and your family missing? The depth of despair must have been unbearable. And indeed it was, as David and the people who were with him, without a doubt, these are some of the toughest men on the planet. They raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So not only does David have to confront the reality that his home he's been building, the city he's been building up for him and his family and his army and their families for all this time has been burned down, that his own family and the families of all his men and all their possessions have been taken. But on top of all that, now his own men are turning on him and they want to stone him because for the past 16 months, David has led these same men on raids against the Amalekites who have now seized the opportunity when all the Philistines and David and his men are all away from home preparing for war, they seize the opportunity to get their revenge. So they burn David's city and they steal their herds and belongings and kidnap their wives and children. This is Job-level calamity, but on an even larger scale, 600 times worse, in fact, because it wasn't just David's home and family that had been taken from him. It was all 600 of his men's homes and families, too. And now they're all looking to blame David, to kill him for it. I don't think, I don't think we can overstate the utter despair, the desperation that David was obviously experiencing at this moment, not since his flight from Gibeah, his home, his wife, and the, uh, his attempted murder by Saul, his king, had David been so alone, as he expressed in Psalm 25, 16 and 17. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Yet as deeply distressed as David was and as urgent as the need to respond was, right? While, while their homes were still smoking, their families still being led away and his men actively threatening to kill him, David doesn't immediately address any of that. He doesn't try to explain himself to his men. He doesn't call them to arms. And he doesn't run after his own family or theirs. No, the very first thing that David does as he runs to God. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In his deepest desperation, David turned to God for strength. Just listen to what David writes in the first four verses of Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. 
What can flesh do to me? Rather than despairing, David turns to God in prayer and worship, and notice he doesn't wait for God to strengthen him. No, it says David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David ran to God. He pressed into God because he knew that was the only place the strength that he needed could be found. So he runs straight to God. That was the very first thing he did. And it is the very first thing that we must do in our own desperation before addressing any of our difficult circumstances or hurt from other people that you may be facing. Listen, before anything else, if you will allow your desperation to drive you to Jesus for strength, First, take the time to pray and worship. Take time to be with Jesus first. And then, then you will be able to face those circumstances and those other people out of his strength instead of out of your desperation. That's where you find peace, even in the midst of the hardest days of your life. That's how David was able to find peace in the middle of his desperation. Because listen, peace always comes from a position of strength, right? Peace always comes from a position of strength. If, if you have two nations that are bitter enemies, and one of those nations is very strong and the other very weak, there won't be peace between them for very long because the strong nation will eventually take over the weak. But where both nations remain strong, there you will find peace between them. This is why Israel as one of the strongest and finest militaries on earth today, not because they long for war, but because they long for peace in a part of the world where there are nations with massive militaries who would like nothing more than to wipe them off the face of the planet. Peace always comes from a position of strength. And so if you want to have peace in your life, you have to have strength in your life. And yet if your source of strength comes from the quality of your circumstances... You will never know the kind of peace that the Apostle Paul talks about, the kind that surpasses all understanding. So when Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13, that's not only a tremendous source of encouragement for Christians today, just as it was then, but it also points us to the absolute necessity for believers to understand and remain aware at all times, especially in times of desperation, what truly is our source of strength. Because the first five words of that verse are only true when connected to the last five words of that verse. Right? The first five words, I can do all things. That's only true when followed by the next five words through him who strengthens me. And so when you try to live by the, the first half while neglecting the second half, you end up with a lot of believers walking around burned out, and stressed out, and worn out with themselves and with their circumstances and with other people. And yet that's what we do far too often. We try to live by the first half of that verse and then we, we wonder why we can't move past the place of desperation into strength and peace. It's because all too often we live our lives trying to do all the things while neglecting the second part of that verse, the part where we create space in our daily lives and make the effort, just like David did, right in the middle of the most imminent, urgent needs, the, the greatest desperation of his life. He created space and took time to make the effort to be strengthened through Christ. You know how that happens? Through prayer and worship. 
Because again, the first half of that verse doesn't work without the second half. The truth is you can accomplish anything and everything that God calls you to, even in your deepest desperation. You don't have to avoid uh, difficult circumstances or difficult people. As long as you run to Jesus, your source of strength, before you do anything else. 17th century French poet Jean de La Fontaine wrote, a person often meets his destiny on the road he took to avoid it. Let's keep reading, verses 7 through 10. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were, with, uh, were left stayed behind. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. So David sets out with his 600 men to pursue the Amalekites and rescue their families. But when they get to the brook Bezor, 200 of his men and a third of his entire army are too exhausted to continue. So David leaves them there. And just before we get too judgmental about those 200 who stayed behind, just keep in mind, it was 55 miles from Aphek to Ziklag via the coastal plain they'd been traveling along. So David and his men had just marched from Ziklag to Aphek. And now back to Ziklag, averaging about 20 plus 25 miles a day of hard travel on foot, carrying heavy equipment and weapons before they set out after the Amalekites. Then arriving home, already exhausted and half starved from the march from Ziklag to Aphek and then Aphek back to Ziklag, they find they've lost everything. Right? Their families, everything's gone. Now, factor in the emotional stress of finding your homes burned, your families missing, the physical exhaustion they'd already experienced, and considering that from Ziklag to the Brook of Bezor was about another 16 miles, you can certainly understand how some of them were unable to continue. So David takes the other 400 men, and he continues the pursuit. And given the difficulty of what they're doing, physically and emotionally, and the fact that he's now without a third of his army, why is David so confident to keep going? Well, it's not simply the desire to see his family again and recover what's been taken from him that's driving him forward. Obviously, that's a big part of it. But it's more than that. Because in the eyes of his men, David has already badly miscalculated the Amalekites, causing this calamity to begin with. The Amalekites are a far larger army than David and his now 400 fighters. Right? If David is wrong again, it's game over for all of them. Yet David doesn't hesitate to continue the pursuit, even without a third of his army, because of what he did first. Before heading out after their enemy, David calls for the ephod from the priest, which contained the Urim and the Thummim, the lots that were used to determine the will of God in ancient Israel. Because no matter how urgent the need was to get going, if there was to be any hope of finding the enemy troops and rescuing their families, David knows not to take one step in that direction until he hears from God first. Okay, in his deepest desperation, David turns to God for his word. He waited for God's word on the matter before he took one step. Remember, his men are ready to stone him to death. His family's being carried away further and further away with every moment that passed, but David stays right there where he was until he heard the word of the Lord for that 
day. David had already been strengthened by God to do what needed to be done. But he still needed to know exactly what that was. So he consults with the Urim and Thummim. And God responds and tells David what to do. He says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And in that moment, the moment God spoke, it didn't matter how big the enemy army was. It didn't matter how far they'd have to go to track them down. It didn't matter how big the risk, how hard the task, or how great the cost. Because as far as David was concerned, God's word was final. It was not optional. So why do we think it's optional for us today? I know we never admit that we feel that way about God's word, but we sure do live like it sometimes. Even when facing potentially life-changing decisions, so often we treat the word of God like an afterthought. Even though there's, there's nothing in this world as powerful, as formative, as life-changing as the word of God. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Romans 4, 17 says God calls into existence the things that do not exist. And of course, we find the description of all of that happening in Genesis chapter 1, where in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verses 6 and 7, God said, let there be an expanse and in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And it was so. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together and let dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to each kind on the earth. And it was so. Verses 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and it was so verse 20 God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens verse 24 God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so verses 26 and 27 God said let us make man in our image after our likeness so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them do you understand everything that was created was created by the word of God how powerful is this word of God the fact is there's nothing else like it and that isn't just a history lesson, by the way, something that just happened in the past. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active today. Proverbs 4.22 says the words of God are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. John 17.7 says God's word is truth. He doesn't say it was truth. Psalm 119.105 says God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This word of God, this, this truth, this life, this healing, this lamp, this light, this word of God that is living and active by which everything that exists was created. This word of God that was breathed 
breathed out by him, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This word of God that formed mankind who breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This same word of God has been given to us as a divine miracle, a supernatural gift intended to light our path, to show us the way, to teach us, to heal us, to strengthen us, to protect us, to guide us through this life. Just let that sink in for a moment. The same God who spoke the universe into existence has spoken directly to you and me. And just to be sure we wouldn't forget what he's telling us, he had some of his best men write it down so we could keep going back to it, so that we could keep feeding on it for our every need. Why do we treat his word like it's optional? The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, Jeremiah 15, 16. Listen, there's nothing in this world or outside of this world like the Word of God. Nothing compares to it. Nothing measures up to it. Nothing rivals it. Nothing can contain it, disprove it, or defeat it. It is life to those who find it, and it is healing to their flesh. And if you're a Christian, all that you have to do to experience all that God's Word promises for your life today is read it. And then do what it says. That's it. Just read it. And do what it says. And then you will find that power. That healing. That strength. That life. That peace. That light. That truth. You will find all of that living and active in your own life. It's as simple as that. And honestly, when you think about it, it seems like that would be the easiest thing in the world for people to do. And yet it has proven to be one of the hardest things in the world for people to do. Why do we treat God's word like it's optional? Because there's no other way. You hear me? There's no other way to live the life you were created and called to live. In fact, honoring God's word is the only way to be true to who you actually are. It's the only way for you to live an authentic life. To not honor God's word is actually to live a counterfeit life. Why? Because we were created according to his word. We were called according to his word. And we're commanded to live according to his word. Anything short of that, we're living a double life. An inauthentic life, pretending to be something we are not. It's precisely why there are so many Christians today stuck in a cycle of desperation, dissatisfied with their lives, struggling to find contentment, who never feel like they're where they should be or could be, because whether they realize it or not, they're living inauthentic lives. They're trying to live according to this world instead of living according to God's word. And I'm telling you, that is a desperate place to be. It's exactly the way God wants it to be. When you're not living according to his word, he wants you to be desperate because he wants you to change. He wants you to turn to his word, which will change your life forever. 
British scholar John Stott once said, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Let's finish the story for today. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to, Am to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Probably not the best thing to say. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you to this band. So he wises up there at the end. Listen, travel in the unpopulated desert of the South had its own set of special challenges and hazards at the time. In particular, there, there was generally no one out there. There's nobody to ask directions from. So there was no way of knowing how to find the Amalekite army. They could have gone in any direction. But David was trusting the promise of God's word that he would overtake them and rescue their family. So he leads his men into the unknown until they happen upon a half-dead Egyptian who has the exact information that David needs. Because although David had the strength of God for the task at hand and, and the promises of God's word that he would be successful, he still needed the guidance of God to carry out that mission, the day-by-day, moment-by-moment direction that only comes when you learn to listen to his voice and recognize his hand at work in your life through circumstances and other people. And so with only two-thirds of his army, no supplies and no idea where the enemy was, in his deepest desperation, David turned to God for his guidance, which is why he was able to recognize God's hand at work through a half-dead foreign slave who had just helped burn down David's home and kidnap his family. And as a result, David swears an oath to God placing the success or failure of his entire military mission to say nothing of the hopes of the 600 families for reunion and restoration in the hands of a man he'd only known for about an hour, a man who had just admitted to taking part in torching David's city and possessions and making off with his wife and children. By all accounts, this was a massive risk. But it was also David's greatest hope, not because of the trustworthiness of an Egyptian slave, but because of the trustworthiness of God to guide David through an Egyptian slave. So David swears an oath by God to protect this man, his enemy, in exchange for guidance into the enemy's encampment. At face value, this was a massive risk to trust an enemy fighter not to lead you into a trap, right? The, uh, the Amalekites are not stupid. They knew when to attack David's home when he was away with his entire army, and they would have surely known that he would come looking for them. So why not leave a slave behind to either throw David and his men off their trail or to lead them into an ambush? This was a massive risk. But again, David wasn't relying on the integrity of the Egyptian to guide him. He was relying on the integrity of God to guide him through the Egyptian. And look, from Abraham to the apostles... If you work your way through Scripture, 
you will be hard-pressed to find a hero of the faith who didn't risk everything for God at some point in their lives. There was such a profound conviction and confidence that God would fulfill His promises that they put all of their faith, all of it, in God alone. And as you can clearly see as you read these stories like this one today, the confidence that God would guide them, even through what seemed like great risk, was reflected in how they lived their lives day by day. The places and, and people and circumstances they allowed God to lead them into, which is why their lives stand out from everyone else. Because it didn't matter the risk. When God said go, they went. Yet today... We're so averse to risk. We're so resistant to risk that it's deemed foolish to embrace it, even though Scripture is clear on the matter. Listen, risk is requisite. Risk, at least uh, what this world defines as risk, is required if you are to live your life literally allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you day by day. As I've said before, you can have great risk without success. But you cannot have great success without risk. Now I want to add an asterisk, a footnote to that statement. Because the truth is, when you're following the guidance of the Holy Spirit in line with the Word of God by the strength that only He can provide for you, right? when you're doing exactly what God has created and called you to do, what might seem like the greatest Risk of your life, according to the metrics of this world, is actually the most secure place you could ever be. Why? Because God will never lead you somewhere you shouldn't be. You hear me? If you're somewhere in your life today and you know you shouldn't be there, you didn't follow God there. Because He will only guide you into places and relationships and circumstances that are ultimately for your good and for His glory. He will never lead you somewhere that He won't also provide for your every single need. Which means even when it looks like a massive risk to follow Jesus where He's leading you, if you're truly following Him, you don't have to hesitate to go wherever He's guiding you because that's actually the most secure life you could ever live. It won't be boring. I can promise you that. But you will be more secure in Christ than you could ever be in this world, which we're going to see in the second half of this story. So look, when you're following Jesus, don't be afraid to take what this world says are big risks in your life, especially when you find yourself in those times of desperation, when, when you're desperate for something to change in your life. Because so often... That's the point of desperation. That's why he allows you to become desperate, because he wants you to change. So often, I know, it's unsettling. It, it can be unclear in the moment. And sometimes making big changes in your life looks like a big risk for your life. But listen, if Jesus is guiding you into those changes, there's no better place you could ever be. Author Lynn Cowell said, while it is natural to despise being in a desperate place, it is here in the exact place we want to escape from that we come to know God by experience. Okay, Being in a state of desperation is not something that anybody looks forward to. I know. It's uncomfortable. 
It's unsettling. Sometimes the only way out of that desperation can feel like a massive risk. Yet God allows us to become desperate at times in our lives because He wants us to draw closer to Him until we're changed. Yet if we're comfortable all the time, well, we'd be hard-pressed to ever want to change. So listen, if you're in a place in your life today, a desperate place, before you do anything else, if you will turn to Jesus first, He will strengthen you, first of all, to make those changes that He's promised will be for your good and for His glory, no matter how big of a risk it may seem to be. And then He will guide you through it every single step of the way out of that place of desperation. Listen, into a place of fulfillment as you walk out the life that He created and called you to live. That's why sometimes we need to be desperate. So don't despise it. No, embrace Embrace the desperation when it comes and the change that comes with it. And I promise you, your life will never be the same again. Let's pray.